25-year-old-plus church can experience a balance of generations in which there's new children and people placing membership and joining here in the work of the kingdom together. Jenna and I missed being a part of what we consider to be one of the most exciting moments of the summer since our vacation uh, coincided with Vacation Bible School last week. But for those of you who are here for the house that was rocking with 250 kids, you know that an 85-year-old congregation that can have that kind of energy inside of its walls and literally lifting the roof for Jesus is a place where his spirit is dwelling. Amen, church. Amen. And so today as we continue, we're in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll give you just a moment to open up to Ephesians 6 where Kenny just read from verses 1 through 9. And I want to remind us that we're now in the third and final month of our series in Ephesians called In One Life. And this series has taken us on a journey through Paul's letter to Ephesus and the church there, where he teaches them, he reminds them, about their identity in Jesus Christ, the unity of God's church, and the unique countercultural kind of life of love that Jesus has called us to. This life has the new identity in Christ and unity with all the people of God, and so it inevitably leads to a countercultural life in which love redefines all responsibilities and bonds. You might remember the words of Jesus in a couple of different places where he redefines every relationship that exists in these two sentences, that we as Christ followers should love our neighbor as ourselves. And when he was challenged to define who a neighbor is, he opens that channel up so wide that there's no one that could be left out of it. We love everyone as we love ourselves. And then secondly, Jesus makes the point crystal clear for the most difficult cases in our lives, that we should love our enemies and pray for persecutors. No other teacher in the history of this world taught that every relationship and bond was so uniquely transformed by love as Jesus did. And for Paul, as he writes this letter to Ephesus, he encounters this morning two of those relationship categories, one of which at all times in all places in history is difficult, parenting and growing up as a child in a home with parents. But a second relationship that has points of continuity in every generation, but a unique way that it was experienced in the Roman world of Paul's day. And so, Since we believe that Jesus' love impacts all relationships, both the people in the relationship that are powerful at any given moment and the people in the relationship that are powerless at any given moment, we can see why Paul spent time after he talked about husbands and wives embodying Jesus Christ in marriage that Paul would then address children and their parents and this unique Roman world relationship in which there were slaves and masters in nearly every household. Now today, we have some comparative relationships 
Although we should be careful to remember that we live in a place and a time where these relationships often look differently than they did in Paul's day. The church and the world are always wrestling with how to play out Jesus' love. But the way that those wrestling matches occurred in Paul's day are somewhat different than ours today. For instance, we still have children and parents. And so many of you are so glad to hear Kenny read the words, children, obey your parents. And we all live as children of somebody and experience in life perhaps both the powerless and the powerful side of that relationship. But in our culture, we also have this employer-employee relationship that shares some points of continuity with the ancient slave and master relationship. We'll talk more about the kind of slavery Paul's addressing in a few moments, but for now, just hold on to this in your minds. It is very unlikely that in any way Paul is admonishing or encouraging or supporting the kind of slavery that existed in America in the antebellum uh, international uh, slave trafficking years, or the kind of slave trade that we see today in the world and that we mourn about when people are sold into sexual trafficking slavery. Those aren't the kinds of slavery in any way that Paul has in mind from his context. And then there's many other relationships in our modern world in which some people are more powerful and others are more powerless. And in every relationship we're in, Jesus is looking for the transformation, what he calls the narrow way, what he calls that little narrow way that leads to life, in which we walk that line that God has called us to, to be in the world but not of it. And so Paul dives in with these words, and let me read them for us again. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, Paul immediately launches into a commentary on the Old Testament. He says, honor your father and mother, which of course is a quote from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is the chapter famously that has the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as the Jews called them. And this word to children, as Paul notes, is the first one of the Ten Commandments that comes with a promise All of the other nine commandments are simply stated, it's your obligation to do these things. Do not lie, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not worship idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and so on. But this one command uniquely was given a promise, and Paul cites it, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. You see, Paul understands like most societies have, that if the powerless people in society don't show honor, respect, and authority to those who are powerful in the relationship, society will crumble. Most societies have held that children should obey and honor their parents. The Roman law said the very same thing. What is unique in Paul's letter is verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So Paul, after addressing the powerless 
people in the relationship, addresses the powerful people in the relationship. This is the way he always treats people in various relationships in all of his letters. And so the Bible, unlike most ancient world, or the Greek world, or in the ancient Egyptian world, or Babylonian world, the Bible insists that everyone has rights. And where verses 1 through 3, addressed to children, have been foundational in most societies, verse 4 is unprecedented in the Roman world. Parents had absolute authority over their home, unquestioned authority in the home. And so it is countercultural for Paul to say that there's any limit at all on parenting. It wouldn't have been so much of a surprise to the Jewish Christians because the Old Testament, especially and famously Deuteronomy 6, the chapter that our home point ministry at this church is founded on, says that parents are to impress God's teachings on their children. And so we see in the Jewish Old Testament an expectation that parents will invest in their children for God's sake. The Roman world would have had no such expectation. And so this indicates a sweeping change in how Paul expects Roman Christians or Gentile Christians to use their powerful positions. A second point that we're going to notice shortly is this, that the Bible, unlike most ancient philosophies, insists that everyone has a debt of love. So first, the Bible insists everyone has rights. And second, the Bible insists that everyone has a debt of love. We see this in verses like Romans 13, 8, where Paul wrote in what's a sister chapter to this section of Ephesians, like Colossians 3 is a sister chapter to Ephesians 5 and 6. Let no debt remain outstanding except a continuing debt to love one another. Or you may remember Jesus' words, freely you have received, freely give. Jesus and Paul alike expect that those transformed by identity in Christ and unity in Christ's church will experience a transforming love to such an extent that even if they're the powerful people in any situation, they will see it as their unique responsibility to treat the powerless people as Christ would. And that all of us who are in a powerless position would treat those above us as Christ would. We all get to be Jesus to each other. This is why Jesus can say, inspired through Paul's writings, that we are the hands and the feet of the body of Christ. We literally, in the church, embody Jesus. The world can't meet him physically today. They can meet him spiritually. They can meet him textually. But the church today can meet the world physically. And your hands and your feet are the Jesus that they need to meet. And so, Paul moves into one of the most uniquely difficult topics in his world and in his era. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. And this is a high calling, just as you would obey Christ. 
Paul says to those who are the least powerful people in the household, who have less rights than the children of the household, obey as if you were obeying Christ. He'll go on to say, with your whole heart, obey. And we need to, for a moment, talk about slavery in the first century context so that we can get an understanding of exactly what it is that Paul is telling people to do and how it looks like and how it looks different than the world that we live in today. So slavery in the time of Paul is often misrepresented as if it wasn't a bad thing at all. It was only a job. And in many places, in many people's experiences, that was true. There was many reasons a person could become a slave in the first century in Roman society. Some of those reasons were being conquered in war, committing a crime, being poor and needing a way to pay off your debts. So selling yourself into household slavery so that the master would pay off your debts, keep you from being imprisoned, and you could work off your debt. And some people were slaves simply because they were born as, as children of slaves. So when slaves in captivity in, in Roman society had children, those children did not belong to them legally. They belonged to the master of the household. In the first century, the dignity of people who were slaves varied widely. Some were abused and some had high social standing. There's many accounts of slaves who had higher positions in society than free men who were poor. And so some slaves would be entrusted by their masters with very important tasks, like leading the trade caravans that would go from country to country and being responsible for their master's estate. Some of them represented the master in political situations, in social situations. But it was also not uncommon in Roman society for the master of the household to sleep with the girl slaves in the morning and the boy slaves in the afternoon and his own wife at night, and for him to know and her to know and everyone in the house to know and no one to say a word because the master has absolute authority. The status of a slave was that they had no legal family or property. If they could buy their freedom, which many eventually could do, they would be allowed to acquire property, and some who were treated well were given gifts of property. But while a slave, they don't own anything. And the duration was often for life, possible to purchase your freedom. But the number of people is astonishing. Because all races and ethnicities were represented in slavery in the Roman world. This was not an issue of one race oppressing another race. People could be white or black or tan or speak any number of languages and be a slave or a master depending on their social and economic situation. But over 50% of the world in Roman society in Paul's day is a slave. Paul simply is addressing the largest elephant that's ever been in any room. And so Paul will say to these slaves, obey your masters not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Many of you, just like myself, have seen situations 
in which people take advantage of the boss's absence. One New Testament scholar tells a story about his young working days in the 1960s in Great Britain. When he worked on a road crew and he witnessed that people worked as slow as they could all day long, didn't get much work done, because then they would be paid overtime to get the work done in a hurry at the end of the day. And he questioned, how in society do we get to places where we feel that it's okay for us to take advantage of those who are employing us? Well, we don't get it from Scripture. Paul says to do the will of, uh, of the Master as if you were doing the will of God from your heart, to serve wholeheartedly. And again, in the companion passage in Colossians 3, he'll say, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as if you're working for the Lord and not for men. Serve as if you're serving the Lord and not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And then Paul does it again. With a single verse, he writes what is unexpected in Roman society. First, he says what every slave owner wants to hear. Slaves, do your job well. Obey your masters. Live honorably with them. But then he has a word for the powerful, for how Jesus' compelling love transforms their responsibility. And he says, masters, treat your slaves. And these words are powerful in the same way. No one in the Roman world would tell a master what to do with their own slave. There were very few rights that protected the life of a slave. But Paul is able to say in one breath, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. When you serve your powerful master, look at him as if he was Jesus and love him as if you were serving Jesus. And then to the the master's, He says, and you do the same thing. Look at the powerless as if you're serving Jesus. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Paul has to delicately navigate the difficult places in his world. And some of us are troubled by the Bible and slavery. This is a common question that people who challenge the Bible and its authority and Christianity in the world ask. Is the Bible too comfortable with slavery? Why doesn't Jesus or Paul banish it? Why not set half the population free? In fact, doesn't Jesus emancipate the oppressed in Luke chapter 4 when he says, I've come to set the oppressed free? Why don't they banish it? And so then this is the root of the question where people are feeling in their hearts, is the Bible fair about slavery? Is the good news powerful enough to be good news for everyone? Is the Bible too comfortable with slavery? And to this, before we look at a specific way Paul treated slaves and masters, let's be reminded that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul made these remarks about slavery. While he doesn't overthrow the system, he says to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Because Paul knows, like us, the value of freedom. You were bought at a price. That's a reference to Jesus' atonement at the cross. So do not become slaves of human beings. This is if it's possible for you to do so. And yet, N.T. Wright 
a prominent New Testament scholar will say, Paul could no more envision a world without slavery than we can envisage a world without electricity. Because when you have 50% of the population being slaves in the household, they're the ones who wash clothes. They're the ones who prepare meals. They're the ones who, who clean the house. They're the ones who care for the animals and the crops. They're the ones, very literally, who keep society afloat. And just like the modern man or woman expects electricity to be there tomorrow morning, to run the washing machine, to run the water, to make things grow, to keep things cool in the heat of the Arkansas summer. I mean, praise God for air conditioning. Amen, church? So the ancients expected the system of slavery to be there to support basic daily needs. It wasn't that they thought of slavery as inherently good or evil. They just couldn't imagine life without it. The New Testament is familiar with several slaves who did become Christians. I wanted you to see their names so you could connect this principle in abstract to people in history. Paul will name Secundus in Acts 20 verse 4, and Tertius in Romans 16.22, and Cortus in Romans 16.23. The funny thing about these three names that don't make sense to us in English is that they mean second, third, and fourth. These are simply the second, third, and fourth household slaves in different estates in Roman society. Their names were stripped from them, their identities stripped from them. They were given a number instead. And then we have a name of another slave, Onesimus, in Colossians and Philemon, which are companion letters that both went to the church in Colossae at the same time. Onesimus' name means useful, which is a great irony because he's been useless to his master. He's a runaway slave. Runaway slaves in Roman society can be penalized up to death. And those who help them run can also be executed for inciting slave rebellion. In the book of Colossians, chapter 4, when Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, he's walking a very thin countercultural line. Because all it takes in this world is one accusation that Paul has assisted slave rebellion and the church and Jesus' name are done for in the eyes of Caesar. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow, Paul chooses his word carefully, servant in the Lord. The Greek word being the very same word that means household slave. This is not the word diakonos that means a person who serves in the church like a deacon. This is the word doulos, which means a slave. So Paul writes, Tychicus, this free brother and minister, is a slave to the Lord. I'm sending him to you, church in Colossae, for the express purpose that you would know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with useful, our faithful and dear brother, a word that slaves aren't even allowed to carry because they don't have relationships legally. And Onesimus is one of you. 
They will tell you everything that is happening here. And so in that one uh, line, those few strokes of the pen, Paul takes useful, the slave, and he puts him on the same level in the kingdom of God as Tychicus, who becomes uh, submitted to being a slave in the Lord, while Onesimus is raised to being a fellow brother in Christ. Here's the letter uh, in its entirety in two minutes. This letter came with Colossians to the church in Colossae as Paul walked the delicate line of how to transform the master-slave relationship without inciting slave rebellion. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, the owner of Onesimus, our dear friend and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, he's the minister in Colossae, and the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, that's Philemon, the owner of the slave Onesimus, you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Philemon would be beaming to get that message from Paul. And therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, the only power that can change any culture. It's as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Do you see how he makes his appeal? I'm old, I'm imprisoned for Jesus. That I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who can't legally be a son, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me, a playoff of his name. I'm sending him, who's my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Philemon, wouldn't you take my place if you could? Onesimus could, but I've sent him back to you because I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, Paul says, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention, Philemon, that you owe me your very self. How does Paul do this? He walks the line of commanding Philemon to receive the slave as a brother, and yet he says to him, I don't command you, but just remember, you owe your soul to the gospel that I brought to you. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And then Paul drops the greatest one line, I think, in all the New Testament. And one more thing. Prepare a room for me, because I'm coming to visit you. I'm going to see how you handled this. I'm going to watch what you do with your power. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings. 
So does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. And with those words, rather than announcing an emancipation, Paul insists on a mutual responsibility through Christ's love that forever changes what it means to be a slave or a master. And so Jesus' narrow way undermined the Roman system of slavery without tarnishing Jesus' name or getting everyone killed. It's one of the Spirit's great moments in Scripture. And today as we're about to sing our song of invitation and we stand to worship a little bit more the Lord who loves us and set us free, the challenge for you and me is to learn to walk as Paul walked, to learn to walk the delicate countercultural lines where we love first and love boldly, love deeply, and love enduringly. And my prayer and my blessing for you is that the Lord of peace himself will give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Let's stand and sing.